A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. So I want to share with our listeners something that happened this afternoon, and it is the perfect segue to recording an episode about stress, worry, and anxiety. When you hear this episode, you might imagine that this is the first time we are recording the episode with Terry. However, what you wouldn't know unless I told you is that we recorded an entire episode with Terry only a couple of hours ago, only to realize that we were not actually recording. What happened to my heart? My heart rate went up. I started to sweat. An entire wave of shame swept over me. And I had this moment, like, do I fess up to my mistake? and deal with my stress? Or do I somehow pretend like we were actually recording? But of course, there's no way to do that. So I confessed to Terry and to Kara that we were not recording and we quickly worked out a way to handle it, which is to get back on Zoom a couple of hours later. So I don't know what... But you also turned sheet white. Sheet white, which if anyone of you, any of you know me is a hard feat because I usually have big red cheeks. So here's what I did in the interim. And Terry, you're going to walk us through 
before we do anything else, what it was that I did that was like actually some version of CBT and I didn't know it or some version of anxiety lessening. I made a cup of tea. I went to the bathroom because <laughs> I'm a 45 year old woman. I brushed my hair. I changed my shirt and I even brushed my teeth because I wanted to feel like I was giving myself a fresh start. So I am going to read Terry's introduction and then we're going to have a conversation. This is not how we originally planned to do it. Terry is going to walk us through what someone should do in Cara and my position, my position when you really blew it and you're feeling very stressed out. So so that all of you know who Terry is, I'm going to read her beautiful bio and then we're going to have a conversation about this perfect example. Okay. So Dr. Terry Backow, our patient, flexible, and very understanding guest today is a widely known expert in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, an evidence-based therapy approach. And Terry has authored several peer-reviewed papers on her research. She sees clients in her private practice in Manhattan and has been featured in a variety of publications and podcasts. She is the author of a new book for adolescents and young adults and their parents called Goodbye Anxiety, a guided journal for overcoming worry. Available now via all online retailers. Terry lives with her husband and two children on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Terry, welcome. We are so happy to have you here again two hours later. Thank you. My pleasure. So start us off, right? You've got a kid, an adult who has just totally blown it. And every sign of stress and anxiety is going through them. What do you recommend? What are the manifestations? Physically, what are you seeing in their body, their behavior? What's going on emotionally for them? Talk us through that. Yes. So it sounds like when you have a moment of panic in your body, you tend to have a number of physical sensations, including racing heart, palpitations, butterflies in your stomach, muscle tension, maybe even a headache, certainly tender muscles. And in that moment, you kind of freeze. You kind of just put the brakes on. And then typically the panic is accompanied by some anxious and stressful thoughts like, oh my goodness, I screwed up. Or how are we going to fix this? And then really after the races with an anxiety or panic reaction. But I think you handled this so well. And I think that, you know, we engaged in some collaborative problem solving, which is a great strategy for anxiety management. I love that phrase. And I want to understand like from a therapeutic perspective, what that looks and sounds like. Absolutely. So it comes from a psychologist named Ross Green, who is most well-known for writing a book about child behavior. I believe it's called The Explosive Child. He's well-known for this. And the strategy I use, and not just for child behavior, but for all situation, which is putting your head together to kind of figure out a solution. It's a sense of, okay, we have this situation. What are your ideas? What are my ideas? Let's exchange ideas. Let's stay calm. Let's figure this out. 
and then about collaboration because it involves working together to figure out the solution. Now, what Vanessa experienced was stress. So she was in the moment, right? And she had stress. Then when we got off of our first Zoom and she went through her ritual of tea drinking, shirt changing, cleansing, that was a moment for her of anxiety, not knowing how this was going to go the second time around. Can you walk everyone through the difference between Vanessa's stress and Vanessa's anxiety so that we can tease these terms apart? Absolutely. I think it would be helpful to look at this broadly, which is broadly speaking, stress is an under-moment reaction to a legitimate stressor. And again, the stressor is legitimate, so it is a reaction that is proportional to the situation. Stress, unlike anxiety, is temporary. You know, it's really about what's going on. Whereas anxiety is more persistent, it's long-term, it's more ongoing and chronic. And anxiety tends to be out of proportion to the situation. Anxiety tends to be an overreaction. And in clinical terms, an anxiety disorder is something that happens when you experience this kind of anxiety on a daily or monthly or yearly basis, and you find it difficult to control, and it begins to interfere in your life, you know, maybe affects your sleep or your mood or your focus. And that's really where we got to sort of the problematic anxiety, where maybe talking to a therapist or seeking some help could be useful. So Terry, I want to reiterate that because I think the terms get thrown around so much in our culture and interchangeably, right, between stress and anxiety. And so I want to just make sure that we're getting this right. And you can tell me if I've if I've got this wrong or not. So one is it's in proportion, right? Stress is in proportion. Anxiety can be out of proportion. Stress is in the moment. Anxiety is ongoing or sort of after the moment has passed. And anxiety disorder could be something that continues on a daily, monthly, or yearly basis and is difficult to control. Yes. Okay. That's great. That's really helpful because we get that question a lot. And I think people are really casual about their language around this. And it's really helpful to be as specific as as possible. Yes. And I think a good way to think about it is that you could be anxious about your stress. You could also be stressed about your anxiety. That's great. That's really helpful. So one of the things that I have learned recently is that anxiety can look very different in adolescence than it does in adults. And people are surprised and not aware. And adults aren't always so great at helping adolescents because they don't recognize it as anxiety. They recognize it as some other highly unpleasant behaviors. So would you teach us and our audience what does anxiety look like in adolescence to people on the outside? Yes. So I think, like you said a moment ago, the unpleasant behavior could be an indicator because anxiety in teenagers can manifest as irritability. You know, the teenager can be excessively grumpy. And the reason for that is that anxiety is an unpleasant experience for them. So they are experiencing these feelings and they don't know how to make sense of them. They don't have the life experience 
other kind of perspective to understand necessarily what's going on for them. So they might be short-tempered, they might be grumpy and irritable, might seem like a bad mood, but it's really just an anxious experience that they're having that they're not necessarily talking about because teenagers tend to withdraw. When they're upset, they don't always talk about it. So they might shut down, they might avoid. Avoidance is something that we see a lot. Understand that when we experience anxiety or an anxiety-provoking situation, we want to avoid it. We want to not have that feeling. So you might say to your teenager, let's go out. And your teenager might say, no, no, I don't want to. And that is an avoidance response. But how do we tell the difference between grumpiness from anxiety and just grumpy teenagers? How, how can we tell when it's their hormones or it's their social world or it's their love life? versus its anxiety. Yes. Well, I think that, like we were discussing earlier, it's possible to be in a bad mood for a moment. Anxiety tends to be more persistent and ongoing. So you tend to see this day after day, withdrawn behavior, avoidance, a lot of preoccupation, you know, the teenager might be in their head, so to speak. They might be ruminating and thinking. You might see... A loss of focus is not even ADHD. Anxiety can impact focus. So I think there's kind of this stereotypical notion of anxiety, but then there's the reality of it, which is there are some ways that it can manifest that you might not expect. Terry, what does it feel like? So we're seeing it from the outside. They're irritable. They're grumpy. Maybe they're in their heads. They don't seem focused. They seem to be avoiding certain experiences or situations, right? We're noticing all that and it's persistent. It's ongoing. What can you tell us about what an adolescent might be feeling on the inside to be displaying those kinds of behaviors to the observer on the outside? Yes. Well, one thing to keep in mind, and this might not be intuitive, but adolescents experience emotion more intensely than people that are younger and older. So inside, internally, the experience that they're having is quite an intense one. They're having really big feelings, really big emotions, which makes it harder for them to make sense of those feelings. And this kind of lack of, this confusion, so to speak, can lead to shame. And the sense that the teenager internally doesn't know really what's going on with them, I feel embarrassed. You know, embarrassment is something that comes up a lot with teenagers. They feel really embarrassed quite easily. So I think there's a sense of judgment on the inside. You know, why am I feeling this way? What is this? Why are these feelings so big? What do I do about them? So I think there's a lot of real distress going on internally. That is more than maybe the average person. The other thing is that adolescents tend to be the kind of onset of anxiety disorders for many people, you know, when we look at the statistics, we find that teenagers and puberty is the point, it's the launching point for anxiety. It had to do with hormones, it had to do with a lot of different factors. But it's not uncommon for anxiety to be diagnosed for the first time in adolescence. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? 
And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their Umbra's. It's why we say that the Umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your Umbra, plus lots of other puberty info, at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A dot com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. 
It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. Hey, I'm Allie Colbert. I'm a stand-up comedian, actress, and writer from New York City. And I'm Jackie Colbert. I have made my career as a comedian by using my insights and wit to make points. Funny points, but points. Look, I have good taste and too much common sense for just myself. So I'm going to share it with you guys. Okay, Allie, get over yourself. <laughs> and my younger sister and best friend Jackie is here to bring me back down to earth. Every Tuesday, Jackie and I are going to hang out with each other and some of our favorite people. And of course, respond to your questions and confessions. So send in your secrets. It's like church, but I'm Jewish and bisexual. Tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. help us understand a pet peeve of mine, which is why everyone seems to use the words anxiety and depression in the same sentence all the time. What, what has happened? Because they're different, right? You haven't used the word depression yet. And we've been speaking for a few minutes now. So help us. Yes. Well, I think that there's some misunderstanding about mental illness. But also, it makes sense that these terms would be used in conjunction because clinically speaking, anxiety and depression tend to go hand in hand. The experience of anxiety can make someone depressed. It could be depressing to have so much distress and to not have a feeling of control over it and to have that withdrawal. And when you begin to kind of lose that positive reinforcement, it can lead to depression. So sometimes there's comorbidity we tend to see both. It's not necessarily always true, but it's not uncommon. That's really helpful, Terry, as someone who's constantly writing about studies about anxiety and depression. I even have just started using the plus sign instead of the word and because it's so frequent. So we have a kid who 
just doesn't seem like things are great for them, right? And they're unhappy, they're grumpy, they're irritable, they're difficult, they're, they seem oppositional to us, whatever is going on. I'm the adult caring for that kid. What are the ways that adults tend to mess up their reactions to a kid in that situation? Like what are the no-nos, which in which I would include myself in that category because I mess up like on an hourly basis. And then we'll get to the the kind of the positive stuff. So how do we tend to mess it up? First of all, as parents, it's human we have to pick up ourselves. But I'll do a good back. That being said, you really want to try to avoid validating their experience. And what do I mean by, mean by that? I mean saying to a teenager, just get over it. Because why are you so worried? Why are you acting this way? You know. But it's the saying that never in the history of telling someone to just get over it or just calm down has anyone actually ever calmed down. The reason for that is it can really the communicate to your teenager. I don't get it. I don't understand you. Your feelings are wrong. They're not acceptable. They don't make sense. And this is an experience that we call invalidation. And what that does to emotion recognition is it makes negative emotions stronger, not weaker. So what you don't want to do is say, come on, stop overreacting. That's enough. Which is hard because so much of the time as parents, we can see very clearly the trajectory. You know, I, I got a bad test grade. We, we know it's going to be okay in the long run. I had a fight with a friend. We can already see they're working through it. So it can be hard to not just pat them on the head and say, get over it. It will be fine. But I think, you know, your, your words are so wise. Tell us how can we handle it well? Give me words. I need words, Terry. You know, you bring up such a good point because we do know that it's going to be fine, but they don't know that. So I think we have to start from a place of your feelings are valid. They might not be justified. They might not be warranted, but they are understandable. So this is where, as parents, we kind of almost have to adopt a therapist hat and engage in reflective listening. I say really soothing things like, it sounds like you're having a really hard time right now. It sounds like this situation really freaks you out. This must be so frustrating for you to really reflect the feeling and label the feeling and try to be specific about that feeling. And then once you offer the validation, you then can try to, you know, ask if you could offer help. The thing is that it's tricky with teenagers because a lot of times they don't want to talk about it. They want space, they want independence, they want to work it out for themselves. So you kind of have to be delicate about it. You have to say, sometimes it's helpful even to tell a story about your own life, your own life. You don't want to spend too many minutes doing that because then they'll check out. But you could say, you know, when I was your age, I was also anxious. I had this anxiety for a kick experience. To kind of maybe open the door to a conversation. Beyond that, just letting them know you are there, you're available to listen. Ask, what do you need from me? What could I do? How could I help? Would you like to speak to a specialist? Would you like to know about some resources? How could I help? You know, really coming from a, from a place of open communication, but also not being pushy, if that makes sense. Carrie, do you worry at all? Because one thing I'm conscious of 
doing or not doing is naming the feeling for my kids, right? Or kids that I work with. Like I want to leave room for them to A, figure out how to identify that feeling themselves. And B, I don't want to assume that I actually know what's going on because I may be off base. Where's the line in kind of helping them figure out the language for it and like leaving space for them to to find the language? Right. But when we are saying or naming the emotion for a teenager, it's usually speculation. It's pure mind reading. We really take a guess. We really just take a stab at it. So I think you bring up a good point that we can't really put words on the experience for them. At the same time, sometimes it's helpful to offer language that they might not have. So it could be a delicate balance. I think a good way to approach it is to come at it from a questioning perspective. I'm not sure this is what's going on for you. This might be what's going on for you. Can you tell me if I'm right? Can you tell me if I'm wrong? It seems like you're feeling anxious right now. And that too, you know, you don't want to make assumptions, but you also want to offer some language. How about for parents who are not great talkers or for parents of children who are not great talkers? How do you manage communication when one or both are not chatty by nature? You know, I think you could have it be a brief conversation. It doesn't need to be a long, drawn-out, heavy, deep. You know, you could be really matter-of-fact. You can just kind of put it out there and then walk away. A lot of times teenagers need space. So the thing is to not take it personally, to say, so to kind of even put it out there as parent. I'm not great at this. You know, I think that we all have to be human. We all have, we all have to kind of admit mistakes. Like I'm always trying to tell my kids, when I make a mistake, so I can model for them, it's okay to say that you can, you've, you've made a mistake. So I think parents can come at it from, so I'm not sure that I'm going to get this right, but I know that you're having a hard time. I'm here for you if you do want to talk, or let me offer you some resources. I mean, this might be a good moment to mention. I did write a book that I think could be kind of handed over. It's a comfortable book. It's really accessible and user-friendly. You know, it might piss off the teenager to kind of just hand them a book, but that also might be believed to not have to talk about it. Let me just jump in and say, in the first recording of this podcast, we remembered to mention your book at the top. But of course, now that we're <laughs> we recording, we have completely forgotten. And I'm so glad you mentioned it because... It's a phenomenal resource. It is a book called Goodbye Anxiety, and it really walks both kids and their parents through how to manage anxiety. And one of the things that's wonderful about it and is so on topic for this specific part of the conversation is that it does offer solutions to people in a less verbal moment because there's a very large journaling component to the book. So it's really kind of refreshing to see an opportunity for someone to have a way of communicating what they're feeling without needing to verbally communicate what they're feeling. It's, you know, it's for the reader to write and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. 
Terry, the book is designed or aimed specifically at people ages 14 to 24, right? Who we would call sort of teens and young adults. And the way you phrase things in the book is great because it's very accessible. The language is very chill. And I'm sure my kids would have five other synonyms for chill that I don't even know what they mean yet, but I'll learn in the next year or so. Tell us about the book and what its goals are. Are. I mean, I'm sitting with it in front of me. I did a little bit of work in my guided journal today. Tell us about it, what the goals are, and kind of what informs the approach that you take in the book. Yes. So I think that this book company is timely because even before the pandemic, we saw really high rates of anxiety in teenagers. But since the pandemic, this has skyrocketed. Anxiety has become such a problem for our teenagers. You know, I think that this is why the Surgeon General has really prioritized adolescent mental health. And what I'm seeing is that the psychotherapists that work with young people are booked and book solid because there's such a need for this right now. And so my goal, it's interesting, I was approached to write the book in the spring of 2020. It was, it was during lockdown. And what's really Kind of funny in a way is that I wrote the book proposal during my lunch break in the middle of distant learning of two different kids. So that happened. Oh my God, what a pandemic story. That's amazing. Thank you. And I didn't mention that in the first, the first cover, but it, it happened. And I started writing it in the summer of 2020. So it was really, I think my goal was to offer a resource for young people struggling with anxiety. Therapy could be expensive. And maybe you live in a place where there aren't well-trained therapists. So this is where self-help comes in. It's $15. You can buy this book and you can learn all about cognitive behavioral therapy and other approaches for managing anxiety. And as you mentioned a little while ago, I think how I did, the journaling piece is important because it's based in science and the sense that expressing emotion, venting about them, getting them down on paper, or even verbally, really calm the nervous system, acquire the part of the brain now at the amygdala, which is responsible for emotion. And in the book, my book, I write, you don't need to be a writer to journal because we all do writing at the time. We text, we tweet, we blog, we DM, we do all sorts of writing. So, there is a journaling component in the book, which allows for venting, but the rest of it is skills-based. It's based in CBT and some other approaches, and I can talk about those if that's helpful. That's exactly what I would love you to do. I want to share that as I flip through the pages of the book while we're speaking, so many of the exercises, you might find this to be a, a silly side comment, but they seem very similar to a lot of the very popular manifesting journal exercises that you see out there, which one would not necessarily think an anxiety journal and a manifesting journal would be this one and the same, but they're really two sides of the same coin. So these very sort of cult popular manifesting journals ask for people to identify their greatest desires, to say who they are in a positive way, and to write what they're grateful for. And so many of the exercises as you go through identifying your anxiety 
actually read like a manifesting draw. It's fascinating to me. So for those of you who are feeling uncomfortable about the idea of approaching it through the anxiety lens, you can approach it through the manifesting lens and think about this is a scientific way to think about who you are and to help shift that. And so with that very poor description (laughs) of what you're doing, because you did not write a manifesting journal, can you walk us through what CBT is and, and maybe the alphabet soup of the different therapies that you discuss in the book and help people understand this very popular approach and effective approach to therapy? Yes. I love that you use the term alphabet soup because, you know, a lot of the therapy approaches, which are scientifically based, we have to give them a name. So there's usually some acronym involved. So there's CBT, DBT, ACT, CFT, and you could get lost in it. And the reason I think these names are given is because research is done on them. Research is done. These are evidence-based therapies that are studied at the lab, at psychology labs. We do studies, we compare CBT to treatment as usual. We see which is more effective. And the other research really demonstrates that CBT in particular and the other one, they have empirical support. They have research support that kind of tend to be effective, particularly for anxiety disorders. So in my book, I include a variety of these skills. I would say the CBT is probably the number one that is represented in the book. And it's the one that I'm most familiar with. But I do include ACT and DBT and some other good stuff. And I'm, I'm happy to talk more about CBT if that's helpful. Terry, yeah, if you can explain what like talk therapy, how CBT feels different to talk therapy and why sometimes it's more effective for treating anxiety than maybe talk therapy is. Yes. So I don't want to knock talk therapy. I think it's wonderful. The main difference between talk therapy, or I would guess maybe psychodynamic therapy, and CBT is that the first approach tends to focus more on the past. You know, when you go to a psychotherapist, sometimes they'll ask you about your childhood, sometimes they'll ask you about your mother. There seems to be a common thing that comes up in talk therapy. You know, a lot of focus on the past, whereas CBT is more present focus. We really focus in the here and now. I kind of... They will go from a solution-focused, action-oriented perspective. CBT differs in that the therapist teaches concrete coping strategies. So it has a bit of a didactic component. There's still a talk component. You're talking with the therapist, but the therapist is teaching you on the moment strategies, managing anxiety. And sometimes CBT could be short-term in the sense that you can attend CBT for eight weeks and feel better. Now, a lot of times, my clients will come for six to eight weeks and they just want to keep going because they find that to be helpful on going basis. But CBT can be short-term, whereas talk therapy tends to be several years of treatment. It's a tool in your toolkit, right? It's a wonderful tool, CBT. And it's a tool that people go back, once they learn how to access it, they go back to it over and over and over again, which I think is is a phenomenal piece of the equation. Let's let's dive into a specific example. Okay. So we live in a society with a lot of skepticism 
and a lot of pushback on things that are proven to be useful, but people make people uncomfortable. And you mentioned earlier on about the journaling in Goodbye Anxiety and that people feel that they should be like a good writer or, you know, wonderfully expressive through words. And you said, no, 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 it like, it can work for everyone. So do you have an example or another example of an aspect of the book that people push back on the most, but is actually one of the most useful or effective tools that you teach in the guided journal? Yes. Yes. I just, before I go on, the journaling piece is a good point. That this is why I wanted to have different sections of the book. The journaling component, just the beginning, is section one. So it gives the writers a chance to vent. But the ones that are not really into writing can move forward and dip into the book later and find some other stuff. I mean, I still stand by journaling. But if it's not for you, that's okay. In terms of pushback, there are one or two in particular strategies that I happen to be a big fan of that I think are underrated, you know, maybe in the sense that people might not think this is so great, but I really find them to be rather effective. And these two strategies include problem solving and referring to the second strategy of using coping statements. And I will explain that in a minute what that is. But problem solving, I think, gets a bad rap. You know, it seems so simple, but it's so effective. When we feel overwhelmed, when we feel anxious, when we have so much going on, the best thing to do is to kind of stop and ask yourself, what can I do? You know, focus on what you can control. What action, if anything, can be taken? The goal here is not for parents to come up with coping strategies for their kids or for parents to come up with problem-solving strategies for their kids. The goal is for teenagers and young adults to learn that skill on their own because they've got to flex that muscle a lot in their life. And it doesn't help them if those are being spoon-fed to them for their entire life. Is that that fair? A hundred percent. Because I think parents are not professionals. You know, you could be a wonderful parent, but you're not a professional. You're not a specialist. And you could always offer support to your child. But I think the book allowed them to have that autonomy and to really almost be their own therapist, be their own coach, and use these tools. And I always say, you know, there's the thing that you would want to hear, but we can't make other people tell us what we want to hear. However, we can say these things to ourselves. So in the book, I offer examples of coping statements and then lines where the reader can come up with their own coping statement. What would they want to tell themselves in that situation if they were trying to feel better? And as the three of us on this podcast well know, you can be the specialist and still in your own home, you you take that hat off. And so when it comes to your own, even if this is the world you live in for work, when it comes to your own kids, there's a big role for being the parent and not for being the expert. And I think to give everyone permission 
to be that parent is pretty helpful. Terry, when we end our episodes on the Puberty Podcast, what we love to do is give a takeaway, a pearl of wisdom. It might be a summary point of something we've discussed, and it might be something that you just are hungry to get out into the world. And if you'd like to start, you can. And if you want us to start, we can. Please tell me what your ideas are, and then I'm happy to share. So my takeaway is that Vanessa learned a lot from the first podcast that none of you heard (laughs) because she came to this second podcast, calm, cool, and collected. She used her breathing strategies. She really embodied the advice that you write in your book and was able in over the course of an hour to shift her perspective. So There is living proof on this podcast that these strategies work. And I hope that anyone who's listening begins to take some of this information, you know, read about it, practice. It's hard to practice. Vanessa got a lot of practice today, but practice makes perfect. It really makes a difference. So my take home is it works. In case anyone's worried, this second recording is even better than the first recording. So in case you think you missed something that was better than what you're hearing, you're no FOMO. This was even better than an excellent first recording. So my takeaway, my, we call it the practical puberty takeaway because we like alliteration. Besides the fact that I'm going to hand this to one of the teenagers living in my house for this long weekend to dive into, and then I'll buy my own copy for me to use, is that something you said early on in the recording, Terry, which is that adolescents feel emotions bigger than people younger than they are and people older than they are. And We know that we see outsized reactions from them, but the fact that they are feeling things more strongly, more deeply is a great reminder that to all of us who say, oh, it's not a big deal when it does feel like a big deal to them. And I want to keep that close to me as I get through the next few months. So thank you for that wisdom. All right, Terry, are you ready to give us yeah. your takeaway? So I'd like to keep it the theme of what happened today, which was such a teachable moment. So to talk about the idea of self-compassion, which is something that I haven't brought up yet, but I think it's so important. I have quotes at the beginning of my book, and one of the quotes is Einstein. He said, anyone who had never made a mistake had never tried anything new. And you know, it's tempting to be a perfectionist. Many of us are closeted perfectionists. But perfection is, it exists only in the dictionary. It does not exist. It's a construct. And failure is also a construct. And I think mistakes, in a way, are also constructs. You know, we tend to feel like if something doesn't go perfectly or doesn't go well, that it's a catastrophe. But I think this is how we learn, you know, we got connections in the brain strengthened by mistakes. We got information about what to do and not to do. And so mistakes are wonderful teachers. And what's even better, a real kind of path forward from a mistake is to exercise self-compassion and the sense that being hard on yourself and being critical doesn't work. It just makes you feel badly. It takes away the learning 
And the alternative of being self-compassionate and being kind to yourself is so much better. What we should show is that being kind to yourself enhances motivation and behavior change so much more than self-criticism. And I find self-compassion to be another sort of secret or underrated anxiety management strategy because you can calm your nervous system by speaking kindly to yourself. You can say, it's okay, it's fine. It's going to be better in the future or this is not a big deal. And so that's kind of the note that I would like to leave on. And it happened to be the last girl that I mentioned in the book because I wanted to leave readers with that positive, uplifting note about self-compassion and to teach them a little bit about the science of it. I love that. Self-compassion leads to better or higher motivation. I did not know that. And in some ways, it's counterintuitive from the culture in which we live. And so I am going to practice self-compassion when we get off this. I am grateful to Cara and Terry for their compassion towards me in my healthy and constructive mistake making. Terry, thank you for not only recording one podcast episode with us, but for recording two podcast episodes with us. We are so happy that your book, Goodbye Anxiety, is in the world, that it is available to all sorts of people out there struggling with some tough times as a tool and a way to help manage things. It's actually like beautiful aqua and yellow colors and the font is really kid-friendly. And I will report back on the parts that my kids were excited to do and the parts that they push back on while I practice self-compassion. Exactly. Thank you so much for having me and for sharing about my book. I'm really grateful. You know, I think that this is a really intense moment right now in the world. And we all need resources and self-compassion. And I I really do think it's going to get better. It really, quite honestly, can't get any worse. But um, I think that this is the moment to really practice self-compassion and to use tools to manage anxiety. And so thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Terry. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.